Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, March 19th, 2010. I'm Alana Rangi. Last Thursday, I had a truly New York City experience. I found myself sitting with 175 other New Yorkers on the floor of the Guggenheim Museum in the dark, watching an opera based on particle physics. Hypermusic Prologue was first performed in Paris last year. It's a product of the talents of Lisa Randall, a physicist at Harvard, Hector Perra, a Catalan composer, and Matthew Ritchie, a New York-based visual artist. It all got started when Hector happened to read a copy of Lisa's book called Warped Passages, Unraveling the Mysteries of the Universe's Hidden Dimensions. It inspired Hector to get in touch with Lisa and propose that they write an opera together. Hector thought the opera could highlight some of Lisa's theories and the general theories in modern theoretical physics today. Soon after, they brought Matthew on board to visualize the project, and last week, they performed, for the first time, a second version of the opera called Hypermusic Ascension at the Guggenheim. This week, Lisa, Hector, and Matthew talk about the experience, the world's possible dimensions, and their individual roles in putting this unique piece together. How to open up your world, describe, reveal, share your truth. I'm Lisa Randall, I'm a professor of theoretical physics, and I wrote the libretto for our project, Hypermusic Prologue and Hypermusic Ascension. I wrote a book called Warp Passages, which was about where we are in physics today, what are the questions we're trying to answer. But I also, in it, I talk about some specific work that I and others did, having to do with extra dimensions of space and, in fact, something called warp geometry. Einstein taught us space-time can be curved and warped. And that was one of the things we talk about, but warped in an extra dimension of space, an additional dimension beyond what we see, beyond the three that we know about. And Hector Parra, who's a young composer who lived in Paris, lives in Paris, read my book, and he had been thinking along the lines of trying to do something related to science and music for a while, and I think he found the ideas very conducive to the notion of an opera, and he sent me a, a long, detailed email. It really was, it really was quite impressive, as you know, a lot of people have sort of crazy ideas or interesting ideas, but he really had thought it through. He thought through the physics, he thought through what he'd like to do with the music, and it was just a revelation for me because I had just, you know, I thought about, you know, in terms of film or in terms of art, just how you could present physics ideas, but the idea of doing it in a musical context seemed like such an interesting possibility. My name is Hector Parra. I am a Catalan composer. I live in Paris for eight years. I work quite a lot at IRCAM in Centre Pompidou. And um, I, I, I compose instrumental and orchestral music at the same time. I, I use electronics to transform the sound and uh, to create new sounds with electronics. So I am very interested also in physics, in science, and also in, in art. I was completely uh, 
in a, in a sort of dream where uh, after reading the book, I felt that all the, the, the structure of, of the universe and, and the world we know could be a sort of theatrical place to set an opera inside. And such dramatic warping effects on, on time and, and, and mass could be transformed into sound and into psychoacoustical perception for the public, for the potential auditors. For me, it was the most beautiful and at the same time most dramatical model to take, to, to set an opera inside. So a new kind of opera, an opera where the public, in fact, was the centrum of the drama and the singers only experiences uh, space and time. But it's the public who really feels this new space, this new possibility. It was an exploration. I'm Matthew Ritchie, an artist living in New York, and I visualize the uh, music and libretto into a three-dimensional environment. Matthew and I met at an Einstein conference in Berlin in uh, the centenary year in 2005, and um, so I already had been aware of him and his work and his uh, work relating science and art. And we clearly wanted to bring someone on board because it, we, we wanted to have some visual representation and, and, thing, and uh, Matthew was an obvious candidate. I've made an extensive effort over the, the years, less driven by a particular idea of a model. I don't have a teleological sort of aim in mind, but I'm, I'm fascinated by the period we live in, which is, I think, is sort of one of the jobs of artists is to make pictures of the time that you live in. And the time we live in is a time where conventional understandings of how the universe is put together that were speculated on 4,000 years ago, you know, the first idea of an atom. For the very first time in all human history, we are starting to have evidence of that some of these ideas are right and some of them are wrong. But we also don't definitively know which one of those solutions is going to be proven out. So there's still enough space to be an artist. It's not like if I was to do work about, say, I don't know, chemistry, Chemistry is pretty well understood and the interactions, so it would be more about filling out a program. But when you think about um, elementary particles and the enormous questions that keep popping up, like where is the missing 94% of the universe? I think we all knew that we weren't going to, obviously it would be absurd to pretend that we were going to try and present the theories that underlay this in any real legitimate sense. Like that was something we all agreed early on was impossible and would not be a good idea even if it was possible. So then you have this question of like what kind of narrative it is and this applies as much to visual art and music as anything else. And I think we all agreed that it would work really well, especially for an audience, if it followed on one level this kind of linear narrative. But it wouldn't be an exegesis or a kind of explanation of these theories in a very dry way. And it wouldn't be a, a mimesis like a using these classical narrative terms, which is sort of a real, a slice of real life. It would be what's called a diegesis, which is a, a narrative form, where it's, it's a telling of a tale. And this is how we, most stories are really constructed. And once we established that, then we were also dealing with another set of, of ideas, which is the relationship of what are called a glottographic or linear systems, like a theater or a story, and semasiographic systems, which science and art and music are all drawing systems at heart, which allows them to occupy a different kind of creative space. In other words, a drawing or an equation or a piece of music can move backwards and forwards in time, can expand or contract spaces, the things you precisely that you cannot do in a narrative.
if you came to the Guggenheim, you would have walked up from the lecture we gave explaining some of these ideas beforehand into the rotunda, and you would have seen a floor covered in uh, tessellating tetrahedral diagrams, if you like, and a structure built out of the same kind of drawing in space, which for me represents this kind of stand, and it's like a character that stands in for the four forces because it has four planes, and it can be built and scaled across different, different types of structure. And then at the beginning of, of the piece of the Guggenheim, which is very different to the one in Paris, the singer, the soprano, made a very sort of ceremonial entrance wearing a kind of, we call it an aura instead of a costume. It was like this kind of a halo of material. And she, she began to sing fragments from the soprano's exploration of this, this journey. And as she did so, she climbed from the bottom of the rotunda to the top. And as she ascended to each layer, a new layer of the balustrade of the Guggenheim would be lit up with a projection with an image approximately corresponding to the parts of the, in, in the opera where she would have been moving through the different dimensional spaces. With the idea, not that we want to imply that it's a sort of transcendental journey, because I think a very important distinction for all of us is we're not seeking to transcend the real universe or kind of annihilate it with science, but to actually kind of in some sense express it. You know, when I wrote my physics theory, I wasn't thinking of it as, as a work of art. I was thinking of it as science. But I think Hector's recognition that it, it could be a, a really nice metaphor made me more comfortable with the idea of using it. You know, I, I wouldn't necessarily want to put my science into an opera, but, but the idea of having a whole new space, I mean, it was just a very concrete idea. You know, there's many ways in physics we explore places we don't see. Um, you know, you explore really tiny scales, really large scales, things that you just can't access with the wavelengths that, that we can see with. But the idea of having a whole new space um, just brought a whole new life to this idea in the sense that you could say, look, there's this whole world out there that you're missing that you didn't know to go beyond. And to do that both musically and visually seemed like an exciting opportunity. I read 10 papers from IRCAM uh, staff, from uh, IRCAM uh, uh, sound analysis a team, that they are scientists, they are dedicated to phonation and how to synthesize the voice, the human voice. So I read the, the papers and I, at the end I, I thought, okay, I understand how it works, I understand how they can synthesize the human voice. The easiest thing for me was to develop this, uh, this language based on glottal impulses coming from the breath, from the pulmons. So this is the first impulse of sound. We have two main dimensions on this. So that means two different kinds of how we may put into vibration the vocal cords. And then we have the, the resonator, which is the mouth, the tongue, and the lips. And we can use this in a, in a very rich ways. But in that case, the international phonetic alphabet was the best way to, to write, because it's very complex and it's universal. So everybody can read this. And we, we have four or five main dimensions of how we filter our glottal impulses which are fricative, plosive, uh, all, all the consonants we, we do. And I combine this in a multi-layered rhythm, so we can produce our vocal impulses in particular rhythms, and then we can filter this sound in other rhythms. 
So this combination of two different layers, rhythmic layers, makes a, an astonishing polyphony of our vocal way of speaking. In music, if we, we can talk dim dimensions in terms of, of music, our vectors, our, our forces, musical possibilities, we, we have to know that our ear uh, can listen a large amount of acoustic poss possibilities. Inside this universe, we can uh, explore different paths. A dimension in, in sound would be an axe uh, of exploration, a, an internal world inside this larger world of possibilities. It can be limited by instrumental technique, for example, by uh, rhythmic... Uh, I mean, at, uh, these uh, dimensions are sort of micro-universe that are completely linked inside the global production of sound. So the global production is, is the totality and each path, it's uh, really clear. It's a, a, let's say, a linear way to, to, to work with our muscles in, in, the, in the, our physiology of sound production. There really was a lot of back and forth with Hector in the beginning and then with Matthew when he came on board. We had a similar vision of what to do. Oddly enough, I think Hector wanted more physics than I would want to put in. The opportunity to really genuinely new musical devices entered, and so he really wanted that. In fact, he went through my papers and my book and said, okay, I'd like these passages to be in there. I think it was some process of sort of toning that down to make it into something that people could understand as sort of something beautiful, something they can access and, and understand a little bit better. It is rather simple. There's two of them. They're more or less a couple. And in the beginning, uh, she's trying to compose music, and it works up to a point, and she's not satisfied. She realizes something's missing, and she also is interested in science and realizes that there's perhaps something missing from the world. And, and they debate this in the beginning. You know, sh do, does she really need to, to leave in order to come back? And she debates it with herself also. She's you know, more or less happy where she is, but she knows there's something missing, and she's scared. And so should she go and explore? And so there's a tension in the beginning of, is there going to be another world? Will she actually come back from it if, when she goes, if she actually gets there? But she really needs to do this. And when she does go out, she discovers this whole new world, and of course it's very exciting for her. And then part of what they're trying to do is communicate with each other. How does she tell this person who's not in this world what this world is that she found. So part of the more physicsy part is really describing what it is that she's seeing. And the reason, as a scientist, I think that's important is that's sort of how we do experiments. We don't directly go into the interior of an atom. We see indirect evidence that then we translate into what it could mean. And we don't directly go out into extra dimensions, but there could be extra evidence of extra dimensions that would appear at the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland very soon, for example. So part of it is the communication between them, how she says that, how she describes the possible unification of forces when she's far away, how she can describe what this new new world is. And then, of course, there's some reconciliation as he recognizes there was stuff that he's missing, but they both realize there's still stuff that's left to find, and there's still a little bit of a question of, you know, when do we stop or do we keep going and explore, and how do, how do we go about doing that?
The most difficult thing uh, musically for me was to explode the musical language, my musical language, to create enormous distances from the three-dimensional world, the traditional world that was at the beginning of the piece, to the five-dimensional world that we don't know and, and that is completely warped and mysterious. So the most if difficult in, in every contemporary opera, in fact, is to create variety and a, a wide range of, a, of musical spectrum. I really tried to develop uh, new dimensions in, in sound exploration, like very noisy spectrums that evolve in time, like a new vocal language based on phonation and filtering of the voice and electronic treatments which are very, very complex at some moments and that explore the cross-synthesis between uh, vocal sounds and instrumental sounds. In fact, the strings of the, of the orchestra of the piece, the strings spoke in some way because they take the, the formants, the spectral formants of the soprano's voice and the string sounds is completely filtered, multiplied. So each partial of the of the voice is multiplied, but by each partial of the string sound. So at the end we have hybridations. This was a, an important point because this space that we set it into visuals and music and sound had to spoke in some way, uh, had to be vibrant and rich, and completely different that what we know. So, yeah, the most difficult point was to, to get such a big range of musical language and at the same time it should be my language, my music, uh, not imitating old music and, and, and new music. Thanks for listening. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our Girls' Night Out event series and our website. For more information on Academy membership or to support Science in the City today, please log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. As always, if you have any feedback for Science in the City, you can send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week.